Well, here we are coming right towards the end of our Mark series. So if you've got your Bibles, if you want to turn to Mark 15. And I'm going to read and then I'll pray. It's verse 33. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and had cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. We're almost two weeks early here. This is sort of Good Friday happening here as we tackle Mark. And um, this is the pinnacle. You know, this is the pinnacle of um, the whole Bible is pointing towards this point in history. And um, we get a chance to stop and to take note of what's going on here. Just to say on Easter Sunday, it is exciting. We've got Amanda who's going to be preaching to us and taking a sort of four-point format where she will be able to look at the fact that God loves us, that we have sinned, that Christ has died for us and he's risen from the dead and that we get a choice. Actually, today, we get a chance to stop at the death of Jesus. We get a chance to gaze upon what was going on here in this horrific scene. And to ask some questions. And for many of you, hopefully, you've heard, preached many times, the death and resurrection of Jesus. I know Guy's going to be preaching, hopefully, next week on the resurrection of Jesus as we get to stop and ask some questions there. But I wanted to focus in on this small bit of scripture here. Um, Before this bit of scripture, you've obviously, Chris, addressed last week um, this mock trial that Jesus went through. And we saw how people responded to him and acted towards him. And again, just before this, we see again how the soldiers treated Jesus. How appalling it was, essentially. That every person that came to him mocked him, spat on him. He was given really harsh treatment. And um, really here, I want to pick up on three things in this passage. And the thing about looking at the cross is there's many... There's many ways we could preach this this morning. And lots of people tackle it in different ways. And you may have heard many different preachers. And for some, they will focus on the graphic knowledge of what happens during crucifixion. And exactly what happened to Jesus' body. The way his back was torn apart. The way the nails went into the hands and how it proved his death. For some, they might start looking at some of the big theological Issues that we look at for the cross, penal substitution, atonement, 
the fact he is the new Passover lamb, this new era that we're going through uh, in this stage here. But for me, I want to look at three things in this passage that I think are signs that point us. that are, it's, a, it's a dark day that's happening. But these three things that are signs that we see happening on this day actually are good news for us. Even though at the time, it's very dark. It's a dark place. And so, I want to start by looking at verse 33 as we start this passage. So we have this, at noon darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. This is a remarkable thing that happens on this day of the crucifixion. And the annual date for the Passover was always set by a lunar calendar. And there's lots of people who try and discern, there's lots of people who try and discern what's going on here with this darkness. And there are some people who say, well, it was surely an eclipse. You know, and they're trying to explain it away as a natural event. As we look at where this was, where this was placed in its year, this was an impossibility for it to happen. There cannot be an explanation of it being a lunar eclipse because of the the time of year that it happened. And other people have suggested there was a dust storm going on, that this was a weather anomaly that was happening. And actually, again, because of the time of year, this couldn't have been. Solar eclipses, we've been there, we've seen some in our lifetime. And they last maybe a few minutes. But here we have, in the middle of the day, three hours of darkness. Three hours of darkness happening as Jesus is crucified. And so, to be honest, I was thinking about this. Could you imagine this happening in our day? This would be terrifying. Eerie. Even the eclipses that we've seen with our own eyes. They're they're terrifying to see. But for three hours, people would have noticed there was something going on. And actually, we have to ask the question, this was not something that was just naturally happening. This was something that I believe God did on this day. And he turned the day into darkness for three hours because he wanted us to be aware of something that was going on. He did it to signify something to us. Something was happening. And as I think about darkness and light, you know, when we, were, when we were looking at the Christmas story, this story has signified Jesus entering the world. And what we have is we have the star, the light, that leads the way to where Jesus is. We have shepherds in a field in the pitch black darkness. And light explodes in this field as this angel appears to them. And explains to them that the Saviour has been born. That they're to go and visit him. We're told that Jesus himself calls himself the light of the world. We're told to walk in the light. And yet here on the cross in the middle of the day, at midday, it turns dark. This is 12 p.m. It turns dark dark for three hours. 
And I want to suggest, just looking at darkness, what is God doing? Why is it that he has caused it to be dark for three hours in the middle of the day at this point in history? And I want to suggest to you it's, firstly, it's to signify judgment. Okay? I don't know if you remember the plagues in Egypt. This was judgment on the land of Egypt because Pharaoh would not let the Israelites go from the nation. And he was oppressing them. And it says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards the sky, so that darkness spreads over Egypt. Darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand towards the sky, and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or move about for three days. I want to suggest here at the cross... God has caused this darkness to happen across the whole land, it says. And it's because he wants us to understand there's a sense of judgment. There's a judgment of God on what is happening here. These Egyptians, we see were in darkness for three days. And here, there's a darkness for three hours. It's an expression of God's judgment on sin. On planet Earth. I don't remember in this story of Egypt, as the Israelites are, are running towards the Red Sea, the Egyptians decide to follow. And they're coming up fast. And God decides to place himself in the middle. And he causes it to be total darkness on the Egyptian sides. And yet the Israelites have light. And there's this sense of judgment on the Egyptians that he's saying, this is what's going to happen. And there's this light that comes to the Egyptians so they can get through the Red Sea. And we know the story. As you read through Old Testament scriptures, we look at the prophets. When they come and they pronounce judgment, darkness is always mentioned. You read it in Isaiah several times there. You read it in Joel. You read it in Amos 8. And even hell is described by Jesus, which is, we know, a divine judgment, as outer darkness. That's how Jesus describes it. It's one of the descriptions that he uses when he's explaining hell. So I want to suggest God is displaying his divine judgment on mankind and sin as he pours out his judgment on Jesus. So just trying to understand the cross, just to say, the cross is so misunderstood. As we come across our work colleagues, as we come across friends in the street, I think the cross is one of the most misunderstood things in the Christian faith. Where our friends who don't know him, they're so confused by the cross. And so it's really important that we understand what's going on here. So there's judgment. What else do we know about darkness in Scripture? Darkness also represents a spiritual reality. Okay? And there's something here that expresses what honestly is a very difficult theological concept. And it's this idea that Jesus was separated from his Father. Actually, he has to face 
and deal with this problem of sin by himself. And as we've looked at, it's not that he was forced to do this. He chose to do this. This was the will of God. And Jesus chose to go to the cross. And the thing about Mark is he's writing his gospel. His whole focus, and we've seen it in the trial, we've seen it in every encounter that he has during this stage. Mark wants us to know and understand the rejection and the separation that Christ has gone through with regards, one, to mankind, that every person he encounters mocks him. As people spit on him, as they condemn him. But this darkness, I want to suggest, also shows us symbolically a place that Jesus went to for us. A place that for the first time ever, he would be separated from his father. Now, if I'm honest, trying to understand this from a theological perspective, it it is mind-boggling. It's a mystery that I don't even want to try to explain, because I don't think I can. But we get this sense in verse 33 of the abandonment that Jesus feels. And he says this, at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, within the Gospels, Jesus speaks 21 recorded prayers. But this one is the only prayer that he prays where he doesn't address God as Abba or Father. This is the only prayer where he doesn't use God, he doesn't address God as Abba or Father. And actually, there's this sense he wants us to understand. He feels that the Father has withdrawn his presence from him. But I want to say this, as we look at these words, we see that Jesus hasn't lost hope. He still calls his Father, my God. And what's he actually doing? We find out he's quoting from Scripture on the cross. And he's quoting Psalm 22, which was written by King David when he was facing a very threatening situation. But as we read this psalm, if we just read the beginning of it, we're pretty confused. Why is Jesus quoting this? Feels like he's blaming God, but no, that's not what he's doing. This isn't about an angry father who wants to punish his son, actually. The beautiful thing as we read this psalm is that we find out this psalm ends with hope and triumph. I just want to read a few verses for you at the end of it. It says, all the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. Remember, this is written by King David. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. Jesus has recognized something here as he quotes this psalm. He recognizes he has to do this alone. And we've seen, haven't we, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the anguish that he faces. And this anguish, I don't think it's totally about the pain he's going through. It's about this separation with his father. The separation and plunging into darkness. 
But what I want to say, he knows that he's going to accomplish salvation. He knows it's his kingdom of light and life that will always conquer darkness and death. He knows who this is for. He knows this is for the families of the nations. And so this darkness that he experiences, he knows he's got to go through to bring salvation. I just want to say the other thing about darkness. It's helpful for us. As we reflect on what's going on here, darkness is really helpful for us. It's a reminder of the place that we were in before God rescued us. Because the Bible tells us it was total darkness. And the account in Exodus that we've read says they couldn't see anyone or anything. They couldn't even move for three days. The darkness that the Bible describes our lives in is total blindness. In fact, it goes further. It tells us that we are dead. We're dead to sin. And this darkness and this death is not something that we have any ability to rescue ourselves from. We need a rescuer. We need someone who can bring that light and that life. We need the one who has conquered the darkness. And just to say, when we see lots of Hollywood films and we see Star Wars and we see this darkness versus light, or for my kids, they love Marvel films, and you've got this good versus evil, often the fight there is is always won by good. But it's close. Yeah, it's always close. It always comes down to the last move or something like that. Unless it's an end game, and who knows. But I want to say there's a difference here. Light is different. No matter how many experiments that you perform, you will never, ever find darkness defeating light. If you flip the switch in a dark room, then darkness disappears instantly. No amount of darkness. Just uh, a few weeks ago, we were in some underground caves. It took a little head torch. Suddenly, we could see everything. This absolute pitch blackness underground. Gone. As this little bulb lit up the caves. John 1 says, The light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is the good news for us, folks. The darkness that we were in, we've now been brought into a light. And we have total assurance of his victory. This isn't a close run thing. Here we are. It's looking bleak. He's on the cross. He's dying. He's in pain. He's in agony. And yet he's in control the entire time. He knows what he's doing. This isn't even close. Light will always conquer darkness. He is the light of the world. Secondly, I want to look at the veil. Mark, the author here, he switches from the death of Jesus as he cries out. It says he cries out, and we have to presume what he's crying out here because Mark doesn't actually tell us, but in John's Gospel, he cries out at the end, It is finished. And on the back of this phrase... Mark is transporting us 
to the temple. And we know the significance of the temple in Jewish religion. And we're told here that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. It's really important to understand a little bit about what was going on in the culture there. What was the temple about? And for some of you, you may not know. So just to explain, there were outer courts. There was the outer court, which was for the Gentiles and actually for some women. Then there were the inner courts, which were for the Jewish race. And then there was the holy place, which was where the priests were able to go into. And they would make sacrifices for the people. So the people would come, they would bring sacrifices for cleansing of sin. And the priest could go into the holy place. And then, you see right at the back, at the front of this, there was the holy of holies. Okay? And this was essentially the place where only the chief high priest could go once a year on Yom Kippur. It was the Day of Atonement. And what he would do is he would bring a blood sacrifice. He would enter the most holy place and he would actually have to go in with some incense, some smoke in front of him because he didn't want to be blinded by the presence of God. And obviously this has all come from the Israelites in the desert where God was amongst them. And they built the temple based on his commands. And this high priest, once a year, would go through quite a ritual before he entered this chamber. And actually we know from stories with the Ark of the Covenant, which was where God dwelt, that people died when they touched the Ark of the Covenant or they abused it. And so there's this sense that if you entered into the Holy of Holies... And you weren't the chief high priest. On that one day of the year, you would die. Because you are entering the presence of God's throne room. That's what it signified, the presence of God's throne room. It's where God dwelt. And actually, um, we find out that this veil that was torn from top to bottom was what separated, you can see it there, it's what separated sinful people from a holy God. And this curtain was huge. It was said to be 60 feet long, 30 feet wide, and four inches thick. Four inches thick. It was actually changed every six months. And it took 300 priests to manage this curtain. Okay? Four inches thick material. Can you try and think about the force that it would have taken to have torn this massive curtain in the temple? And the fact that this curtain was torn in two was significant. And again, Mark wants us to understand a significant event that has happened on this day. Right on the back of Jesus saying, it is finished. What's happened? What do they want us to know? Well, firstly, just a few observations about this veil. It was torn from top to bottom. Okay? Not from bottom to top. Why? This was God's initiative. Okay? This was a work of God. The size... 
the thickness meant it would have been nigh impossible for man to have pulled this material apart. But the fact that this is torn from top to bottom means this is God breaking in from heaven. He wants to do a work here. He's actually opening up. So it's signifying he's opening up a new covenant for mankind, a new era for mankind. Secondly, it's important to notice it was only ripped after Jesus had accomplished what he was doing on the cross. It wasn't ripped beforehand. Mark's very specific on his timing of events of what's going on. And it was signifying something. It was signifying that Jesus was the perfect spotless sacrifice and he'd been received. He had accomplished what he'd set out to do. Where the chief priests would enter every year and offer a sacrifice not only for himself but for the nation of Israel to cleanse them from all sin. Mark wants us to know that Jesus was the worthy sacrifice who has cleansed mankind once and for all. His blood had been poured out and had atoned for the sins of mankind. And it was this sin that had created a barrier to a holy God. And Christ's sacrifice had dealt with it. This is all about access. Christ had opened up access to relationship with God. No longer was it that the access was only given to maybe the priests or the chief high priests. But actually now, through Jesus' death on the cross, he has given all mankind access into the throne room of God. The Bible tells us that we have all now been made royal priests. We all have access into the throne of God. Not because of what we've done, but because of his sacrifice on the cross that day. No longer. This is why we don't go through priests. You see it in some churches. You have to go through the priest. And you repent and you tell them your sin and they take that to God. Actually, we believe this event here, the cross, has stopped that. You can go direct to God now. You personally have access to the throne room of God. And thirdly, I want to say, the destruction of the curtain represented the end of some temple theology going on. God would no longer be subdued to a room in a temple made of bricks in mortar. The tearing of the curtain was about a new era of God's presence. It was the destruction of a physical place and God would now start dwelling in new temples. Temples of skin and bone, of you and I, his people, his New royal priests would become new temples of God's presence. 
So this curtain is signifying not just that we have access, but that the very presence of God is coming out of the temple. And it's going to be put inside of us. And we will bring the presence of God wherever we go. Do you know, this is, this is a difficult concept to understand. If you haven't heard it before, it'll be baffling your heads. Because it's a whole different culture that's so set apart from us. And I loved reading uh, Andrew Wilson's book on God's stories. And I want to just read out how he describes, in another way, trying to understand this temple and what's happened with the curtain. And he says this. Imagine a large bank and the security measures it has. In the public spaces open to everyone, there's very little real money. You know the money's in the bank somewhere. You make transactions accordingly, but almost all of it is behind coded doors. Like the Israelites in the courtyard of the tabernacle, you can't actually see the very thing you came for. And you have to rely on others who are authorized to act on your behalf, being able to access it for you. The bank staff, though, like the priests in Israel, are allowed through the coded doors into the secure areas. Most of the doors are at least six feet high and three inches thick. But even the bank employees don't have access to the vault. Somewhere deep inside the building is a depository where millions of pounds are stored. It's a maximum security with a giant steel gate that can only be opened with a fingerprint and a retinal scan. And only the chairman, if you move on to that next one, has access And even he hardly ever goes inside. It's awkward for the chairman, inaccessible for the bank staff, and utterly impossible to get near for the likes of you and me. Even the first checkpoint is 60 feet high and three inches thick. Now imagine you walk into your local bank and all the coded areas, all the coded doors are lying in pieces on the floor. And as you peer through into the mysterious world on the other side, you can see an equally shattered steel gates. Behind it, all the money you could ever have imagined in nice, neat piles. You wonder, what should you do? Until the chairman himself approaches you, tells you it's a new bank policy, and cheerfully invites you to go into the vault and help yourself to all the money that you want. This is the picture of what's just happened with the temple curtain torn in two. Christ has beckoned us in. He said, it's all yours. Hebrews 10 says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body. Finally, I just want to look at the response of the centurion in this story. Okay? Straight on the back of this verse, the temple curtain's been torn in two. It's meant now all have access. We come across this. When the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Now, this was a Roman centurion. And again, um, Mark's so deliberate in his time in here. He wants us to see exactly the consequence for what's just happened. And 
This isn't about just the Jews now gaining access. He wants us to understand this is for everyone. This is the Gentiles included. They now have access to Yahweh. And these words that he speaks, surely this is the Son of God. This is the first time in the whole of Mark's gospel, here we are right at the end, this is, and we've seen Jesus doing miracles for people all over the place, stopping storms. This is the first time that anyone has used these words. Seems to have this revelation that Jesus is the Son of God. And Mark's kept that for this specific point. Centurions were seasoned soldiers. They usually had units of men of about 100 men strong. And this centurion would have carried out many crucifixions. He would have seen many men die before. On the battlefield, as well as during crucifixions. And yet something happened here. That was a revelation. There's a supernatural miracle, another one, happening again. In this account. And I want to say for the centurion, this was a dangerous confession to make. The Romans actually believed Caesar to be a son of God. And yet the the centurion confesses that Jesus was surely the son of God. In other words, he's claiming that Jesus was higher than Caesar. This wasn't a wise career move as a centurion soldier. He made a confession that wouldn't have only made him enemies amongst the Jewish leaders, but it's a confession that could not only cost him his job, but could cost him his life. But there was something that he saw in the way that Jesus died that opened his eyes to who he was. The odd thing is, when we look at Matthew's account, and even the Mark's account, the mockers, as they mock him, suggest that the way that Jesus can prove that he's God is to save himself. That's what they're goading Jesus to do on the cross. Save yourself. The centurion here sees something different. Actually, he points us to the fact that Jesus proved He was the Son of God by dying and saving others, not himself. Do you know, of course, Jesus could save himself. But that's precisely the problem. Jesus didn't come all the way to the cross in order to save himself. He came to the cross to die as a ransom for the sins of the world. He didn't come to the cross to finally make a show of power right here and right now. Look, I am. He came to the cross because he was submitted to the will of the Father. He came to the cross to save you and I from ourselves. As Chris mentioned last week, he was put on this mock trial and he could have chosen to defend himself But instead, he chose to be silent. He knew that he had to die. 
to save mankind. And the centurion here, he was likely actually to have been involved at every stage of this trial and crucifixion. And he saw how Jesus had chosen to stay silent, how he was mocked and spat on, how he responded as the nails were driven through his hands and feet. He saw and heard him cry out to his father, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He saw the exchange with his mother and John. He saw the conversation with the thief crucified next to him. He saw and he witnessed the darkness. And what appears in other Gospels is some sort of earthquake. And he realized who he was. So this wasn't the centurion who we read of who, whose daughter was sick and Jesus healed. This wasn't the centurion that we read of later in Acts 10. This was the centurion who had the job, literally, of carrying out the crucifixion of God incarnate. I want to say this. We are a gospel-centered church. And you will hear us, and if you don't, pick us up on us. You will hear us talk time and time and time again about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news of what he's done for us. And we will dwell and we will look at the amazing life, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And I think it's so important that we don't allow ourselves to become numb to what's happened here. This is shocking, folks. God has been crucified by his own creation. He's died. And I want to say, I find that there are times in my life when I'm consumed by other things in life. And actually, I might stop coming to the cross. And it's where I find my faith and my awe, my adoration start to diminish. Maybe it starts to become a little bit dull. But it's as we look and we dwell on who our saviour is. As we spend time seeing once again who he is and what he's done for us. As we get closer to the cross, I believe we like this centurion will recognise fully. We'll fall more in love. We'll stand in awe of our saviour. We've got to stop moving away from the cross if that's where we're at. I mentioned last week on the back of Chris's preach, it's so multifaceted, the gospel. And actually, there's this sense of coming back to it again and again and again and again and being drawn up by the beauty of the gospel, this good news that we have. The good news is that this confession of faith for the centurion took him from darkness, absolute darkness and depravity, and it brought him into a kingdom of light. His confession of faith meant that he was cleansed from all sin, even though he was the actual physical executioner of Christ. I want to say, it doesn't matter what you've done. We saw it with the thief on the cross, but we see it again here 
the very centurion who crucified Christ. Christ's death and resurrection is sufficient for you, no matter what you've done. And you know, he knew it was going to cost him, this centurion, and yet he didn't shy away. He confessed with his mouth that surely Jesus was the Son of God. Now, you might be sitting here this morning and you might feel numb to the gospel. I want to say, we're going to worship. And we're going to, I want, at Easter time especially, this is a time where I want to encourage you to keep reading through these accounts in the different gospels of the death and the resurrection of Christ. Keep praying through them. Because I believe God is going to come and he's going to bring life where we see what Jesus has done. But you may be sitting here and you think, do you know what, I, I haven't made a commitment. I'm like that centurion, I'm looking on thinking, what's this guy doing? This is crazy. But I want to say, as you look, don't leave it. Confess with your mouth that he is Lord and he will rescue you from an eternal darkness, from the outer darkness. And he will bring you into his kingdom of light. He will give you a hope for a future, an eternal future with him.